Chapter 4 The Titanic Struggle of Scholars to Find the Triune God in the Bible. The phrase Son of God indicates Jesus' importance, but by picturing him as a truly obedient Israelite, not as the second person of the Trinity. That's from E.P. Sanders and Margaret Davies studying the Synoptic Gospels. A complex structure has been erected upon the systematic misunderstanding of biblical language of sonship. Indeed, to be a son of God, one has to be a being who is not God. That's from Colin Brown's article, Trinity and Incarnation, ex auditu 7. After the third century, anyone who at that time still kept to the original sense of only begotten Son, and refused to acknowledge the new interpretation, was branded a heretic. So said Adolf von Harnack, cited in Karl Josef Kuschel's book, Born Before All Time, The Dispute Over Christ's Origin. Theological literature, and particularly evangelical apologetic writing in support of the Trinity, makes its case against an increasing volume of opposition from solid exegetical and lexical fact and the historical examination of the Bible. The best that such apologetics can do is assemble a few isolated verses, mostly from John's Gospel and a handful from Paul. It can find no text in Scripture with the word God, meaning a triune God, and little attention is paid to the plain Unitarian statements of Jesus recorded by John. Paul's constant affirmation of the God of his Israelite heritage does not deter the determined Trinitarian. The obviously Unitarian concept of God presented by the Old Testament is bypassed. Some employ fanciful methods, including the redefinition of simple words, to make the Hebrew Bible a Trinitarian book. Language is thus insulted, and those who support the Jewish custodians of the Old Testament scripture and the Jewish monotheistic heritage are appalled and offended. The plural ending on Elohim, God, provides no support of any sort for the idea that God is more than one. The Messiah is not plural, but he is called Elohim, Moses was Elohim to Pharaoh in Exodus 4:16 and 7 verse 1 but Moses was not plural for us texts which say nothing about a triune godhead are advanced against the evidence of 20,000 singular verbs and singular personal pronouns designating the one god as not triune but a single person with a capital P. No verse hints at God being one thing or one what. The overwhelming mass of unitary monotheistic statements about God as the father of Jesus are given scant attention, while a few ambiguous texts are advanced in favor of Jesus being, quote, God. Their weight, however, is slight compared with the obvious description of God across the range of Scripture as a single divine person. A very occasional use of the word God for Jesus is parallel to the occasional use of God 
for important human agents, such as Moses. Altering the unitary monotheistic creed of the Hebrew Bible on the basis of two, for certain, references to Jesus as, quote, God, involves an unfair treatment of the biblical data. If the church is serious about being rooted in Jesus, it would be wise for believers to return to the creed of Jesus and the theology of Jesus. A failure to attach ourselves to Jesus by believing him and his teaching would seem to open the doors to widespread deception. Perhaps this is why Jesus warned that the majority of so-called Christians would one day be disappointed to find out that they were sailing under false colors. Matthew 7, 22-23 A clear picture of the real Jesus as a devoted worshipper of the one God of Israel is now coming to the public's attention from various quarters. A distinguished German, Roman Catholic, systematic theologian supports our thesis. There is no indication that Jesus would have understood the Father differently from the monotheistic God of Judaism. Jesus himself stood in the tradition of Jewish monotheism. His thinking and acting were geared towards this one God by whom he felt himself to have been sent and to whom he felt close. So that, again, following early Jewish practice, he called him Father. If it is certain, and there seems to be no getting around this assumption, that Jesus himself knew only of the God of Israel, whom he called Father, by what right can a doctrine of the Trinity then be normative? That's from Karl-Heinz Ohlich's book, One or Three, From the Father of Jesus to the Trinity. The question could not be more pointed. Professor Ohlich's candor is refreshing. As a historian, he knows that the Trinity did not quote, fall from heaven in New Testament times. It was a painful and lengthy development, and it left the church with a legacy which separated it from its Jewish founder. Olich concludes his masterly account of the problems the church faces promoting a view of God and the Son, which has no roots in the New Testament. The doctrine of the Trinity thus appears to be an attempt combine monotheism, monism, and polytheism, hence all of the important world religious and advanced cultural conceptions of God. Perhaps the fascination of the doctrine of the Trinity can be explained by the fact that it seeks to combine the merits in a suspenseful way of all the conceptions of God which have been mentioned. The warmth and the potential for hope that monotheism awakens, the rational plausibility of a final imminent principle, as well as the communicative and social liveliness of polytheism. Quote, the middle between the two opinions, as Gregory of Nyssa said, between polytheism and Jewish monotheism. So also Harnack observes, that the Christian conception of God as developed by church fathers was, quote, the midway point between the polytheism of the heathen and the monotheism of the Jews. That's from the book Lehrbuch der Dogmengeschichte. 
But was this the monotheism of Jesus, or a rather obvious compromise with paganism? Quotation from Karl Heinz Ulich continues, What the religious scholar is able simply to state, however, signifies at the same time a question for theology about the legitimacy of such a construct. If it is certain, and there seems to be no getting around this assumption, that Jesus himself knew only of the God of Israel, whom he called Father, and not of his own later, quote, deification, by what right can a doctrine of the Trinity then be normative? How can one legitimize doctrinal development that actually first began in the second century? No matter how one interprets the individual steps, it is certain that the doctrine of the Trinity, as it in the end became so-called dogma, both in the East and even more so in the West, possesses no biblical foundation whatsoever and also has no so-called continuous succession. That's from Ulrich's book 1 or 3. Ulrich was preceded by other historians of dogma who call our attention to the very great difficulty in justifying the rather obvious pagan tendencies of the church since the second century. The world of the second century was marked in its philosophy and religion by a strong syncretism, mixing of alien systems of thought. The highest expression of this tendency was, of course, Gnosticism, within its dualism between spirit and matter, cosmological speculations and progressive emanations or aeons from the highest God linking via these aeons to matter, there was found also a place for a revised gospel of salvation through Christ. With the church, this Hellenization has remained and is to be found first among the apologists of the second century. The church's monotheism always retained a certain heathen philosophical pluralistic coloring. This strange coloring of the doctrine of God began with the taking over of the heathen philosophical notion of logos, which in the heathen background had a different meaning. In John's Gospel, the logos is tied to the notion of teacher and teaching. In the philosophy of that time, it was, on the contrary, only one aeon of the Most High God. It was in this last meaning that the apologists, Justin Martyr and others, read Philo's doctrine of the logos into Scripture. At a quotation from Paul Schrott, the problem of the beginning of dogma in recent theology. Schrott is discussing the views of Friedrich Lufs. But Jesus was far removed from those later developments and compromises with paganism. William Barclay, known for his sober scholarship and painstaking analysis of the biblical texts, comments on Jesus' exchange with the Jewish scribe. This scribe came to Jesus with a question which was often a matter of debate in the rabbinic schools. In Judaism, 
there was a kind of double tendency. There was the tendency to expand the law limitlessly into hundreds and thousands of rules and regulations. But there was also the tendency to try to gather up the law into one sentence, one general statement which would be a compendium of its whole message. Compare Mark 1, 14 and 15 as a compendium of the whole point of the Christian faith. Repentance with a view to belief in God's gospel about the kingdom of God. See also Luke 4.43. Hillel was once asked by a proselyte to instruct him in the whole law while he stood on one leg. Hillel's answer was, What thou hatest for thyself, do not to thy neighbor. This is the whole law, the rest is commentary. Go and learn. For answer, Jesus took two great commandments and put them together. Firstly, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That single sentence is the real creed of Judaism. It was the sentence with which the service of the synagogue always began and still begins. And number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The new thing that Jesus did was to put these two commandments together. That's from the Gospel of Mark, pages 293 to 295, by William Barclay. Barclay reminds us that the Shema, quote, is the declaration that God is the only God, the foundation of Jewish monotheism. He then notes that, quote, when Jesus quoted this sentence as the first commandment, every devout Jew would agree with him. What has happened then to render the church's affirmation of God as three in one an obstacle and offense to every devout Jew? Jesus' description of God has been discarded and replaced with a so-called improved creed which rightly offends Jews and ought to alarm Christians who claim devotion to Christ. The startling fact emerges from this evidence that Jesus' creed did not, and since he remains the same yesterday and forever, Hebrews 13.8, does not match the Trinitarian creed so beloved by his modern disciples. This would seem to call for a deliberate inquiry by churches of all denominations. Something could be systematically wrong with the traditional Christian doctrine of God as Trinity. Dr. McGrath attempts to sustain a Trinitarian view of God from Scripture are unimpressive and often confusing. A leading modern exponent of the Trinity, Alistair McGrath, rightly tells us that Jesus Christ reveals God. He makes no mention of Jesus' express revelation of God as the one God of Israel. He notes that one can find three examples in the whole New Testament of the term God being applied to Jesus. McGrath attributes the sparseness of references to Jesus as, quote, God, to the fact that the writers were mostly Jews. But, one might ask, weren't they also authentic Christians? And did they not know which God to worship? 
Were they not apostolic exponents of the Christian faith? McGrath says, I quote, The New Testament was written against a background of the strict monotheism of Israel. Given the strong reluctance of New Testament writers to speak of Jesus as, quote, God, because of their background in the strict monotheism of Israel, these three affirmations are of considerable significance. John 1.1, 1, 1, John 20, verse 28, and Hebrews 1.18. That's from Alistair McGrath, Christian Theology, an Introduction. Dr. McGrath's remarks provide eloquent evidence that Jesus and his followers did not alter the Jewish creed. If they were strongly reluctant to speak of Jesus as God, could this not simply be because their creed, affirmed by Jesus, forbade them to call anyone but the Father the Supreme God? They show no sign of being Trinitarians, nor, of course, did Jesus. The three examples of the word God for Jesus, as compared with over 1,300 references to the Father as God in the New Testament, are easily explained. John 20 verse 28 is in the context of Jesus saying he is going to ascend to my God and your God. Thomas had failed to recognize that in seeing Jesus, one was seeing God at work. That's in John 14 verses 7 and 9. Thomas' explanation, my Lord and my God, beautifully summarizes his realization that in meeting his Lord Jesus, he is also meeting the one God who is at work in him. The address is to both my Lord, the Messiah, and my God, the God of Jesus and of Thomas. See further Appendix 1 to this book. The references to Jesus as God provide no justification at all for departing from the creed of Jesus who believed that, quote, the Lord our God is one Lord, Mark 12, 29. When it comes to the Trinity itself, McGrath remarks, the casual reader of Scripture will discern a mere two verses in the entire Bible which seem at first glance to be capable of a Trinitarian interpretation. Matthew 28, verse 19, and 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Both these verses have become deeply rooted in the Christian consciousness. Yet these two verses, taken together or in isolation, can hardly be thought of as constituting a doctrine of the Trinity. That's from McGrath's book, Christian Theology. This is a significant admission. McGrath then goes on to give us 20 pages of post-biblical historical development of the Trinity. He has only a page and a half to offer us for its biblical foundation. Then comes this amazing statement. How securely does he really find the Trinity in the New Testament? The doctrine of the Trinity can be regarded as the outcome of a process of sustained and critical reflection on the pattern of divine activity revealed in Scripture and continued in Christian experience. This is not to say that Scripture contains a doctrine of the Trinity. 
Rather, Scripture bears witness to a God who demands to be understood in a Trinitarian manner. We shall explore the evolution of the doctrine and its distinctive vocabulary in what follows. I suggest that Dr. McGrath's faith is rooted firmly in post-biblical tradition against his own Protestant principle of sola scriptura. He seems internally conflicted. There's no doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, he admits, and yet in its pages God demands belief in the Trinity. I invite some prolonged reflection on the statement italicized above. Quote, this is not to say that Scripture contains a doctrine of the Trinity, yet God, quote, demands to be understood in a Trinitarian manner. There's a curious illogicality and irrationality at work here. Can anyone explain how the absence of a Trinitarian doctrine in the Bible is good evidence that God demands to be worshipped as a trinity. If scripture is taken as the foundation of faith, as Protestants claim, its pages yield no information about, quote, God in three persons. The God of Jesus and of the New Testament is a single divine person, the Father of Jesus and of Christians. Frank admissions about the creed of the earliest Christians are found frequently in standard works on the New Testament. Quote, the first Christians were Orthodox Jews who had been brought up to believe that God was one. They never abandoned their belief that God was one, but they gradually came to understand the oneness of God in a new way. That's from Colin Chapman's book, The Case for Christianity. But was that novelty justified? Were later disciples of Jesus authorized to abandon his Unitarian creed? Jewish sources have no doubts at all about the origin of the monotheism which Jesus obviously shared. The Encyclopedia of Jewish Knowledge, under its entry, Monotheism, says, Belief in one God. Abraham was its discoverer, Moses proclaimed it in the Shema, which through the ages acquired a sanctity equaled by nothing else in Judaism. The monotheistic idea was clarified by Amos and Isaiah. The Jews became the Swiss guard of the Almighty. Nothing remained but a sublime faith in the indivisible, omnipresent Creator without beginning and without end, until the Jews became a God-intoxicated people. I am that I am, or on, in the Greek Septuagint version of Exodus 3.14. It is not improved by philosophic or theological speculation. The profession of the unity is the supreme act of faith. It is the climax of the atonement service, the last utterance of the conscious dying Jew. It was the death avowal at the stake, and it is Judaism's greatest contribution to the spiritual growth of the human race. That's from Jacob de Haas in the Encyclopedia of Jewish Knowledge. Speaking of the Jewish creed, 
The same source emphasizes that belief in the one God was the single most important article of faith for Jews. Refusal to worship idols was the only real creed of Judaism. Maimonides proclaimed, He alone is our God who was, is, and will be. That's from his 12th century statement of faith, and compare Revelation 1.8 for the same creedal statement from John and Jesus. Jesus was versed in the law and the prophets and never departed from the core belief of his Jewish heritage. H. H. Rowley wrote, When in the New Testament we find the essence of the Old Testament law summarized in two of its provisions, it is made clear that they are set before the followers of Christ as valid for them no less than for the children of the Old Covenant. These two laws are, you are to love the Lord your God, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. The love of God, if it is to be the love of the God who is revealed in the Bible, must result in the love of man. The covenant whose establishment is recorded in the law called first and foremost for obedience. The principles of humanity so dear to the prophets are expressed with power in Deuteronomy. And there we read the great word which has been cherished by Jews in all ages and which was declared by our Lord to be the first law of life for all men. You are to love the Lord your God. That's from the book, The Unity of the Bible. This is beautifully said, but might it not be added that obedience to these two laws includes or rather is introduced by the command to listen carefully to who that God is who is to be loved. Neither Jesus nor the law which he quoted permits God to be defined as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The text does not say, the Lord your God is three lords in one. Surely the words of scripture have been assaulted when our traditional terms describing God are no longer the words of Jesus himself. And as Rowley says, these words of the law are put before readers of the New Testament as, quote, valid for them. Jesus, indeed, insists on strict monotheism as the continuing basis of genuine Christian faith. Tom Harper expresses his discomfort that the central dogma of Christianity today is not found in the Bible. What is most embarrassing for the church is the difficulty of proving any of these statements of dogma from the New Testament documents. You simply cannot find the doctrine of the Trinity set out anywhere in the Bible. St. Paul has the highest view of Jesus' role and person, but nowhere does he call him God. Nor does Jesus himself anywhere explicitly claim to be the second person of the Trinity, wholly equal to his heavenly Father. As a pious Jew, he would have been shocked and offended by such an idea. This research has led me to believe that the great majority of regular churchgoers are, for all practical purposes, tritheists. That is, they profess to believe in one God, but in reality they worship three. 
Small wonder Christianity has always had difficulty trying to convert Jews and Muslims. Members of both these faiths have such an abhorrence of anything that runs counter to their monotheism or faith in the unity of God that a seemingly polytheistic gospel has little appeal for them. That's from Tom Harper's book, For Christ's Sake. Standard authorities make this important point. Early Christianity consciously adopts from Judaism, Deuteronomy 6.4, the monotheistic formula, God is one. According to Mark 12.29 and 32, Jesus explicitly approves the Jewish monotheistic formula. That's from the entry under the word one, is in Greek, in the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament. Jewish historians and theologians have no doubt about what first century Jews believed about God. Otto Kian, PhD, THD, professor of dogmatics at the University of Leipzig, commented, early dogmaticians were of the opinion that so essential a doctrine as that of the Trinity could not have been unknown to the men of the Old Testament. However, no modern theologian who clearly distinguishes between the degrees of revelation in the Old and New Testaments can longer maintain such a view. Only an inaccurate exegesis, which overlooks the more immediate grounds of interpretation, can see references to the Trinity in the plural forms of the divine name Elohim, the use of the plural in Genesis 1.26, or such liturgical phrases of the three members of the Aaronic blessing of Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26, and the tris ayon of Isaiah 6, verse 3. That's from the new Schaff Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge. Dr. William Smith warned against the imaginative attempts to find the Trinity in the Hebrew Bible. Quote, the plural form of Elohim has given rise to much discussion. The fanciful idea that it referred to the Trinity of persons in the Godhead hardly finds now a supporter among scholars. That's from a dictionary of the Bible. Doctor of Theology, Wolfhard Pannenberg, stated, Jesus is what he is only in the context of Israel's expectation. Without the background of this tradition, Jesus would never have become the object of a Christology. Certainly this connection is also clear in other titles, and generally throughout the New Testament, especially in Jesus' own message. His message can only be understood within the horizon of apocalyptic expectations, and the God whom Jesus called Father was none other than the God of the Old Testament. This context is concentrated in a most particular way in the title Christos, this justifies the formulation of the content of the confession of Jesus. He is the Christ of God. That's from Wolf Hart Pannenberg's book, Jesus, God and Man. 
How very confusing then to say that Jesus is God. I quote again, to the men of the New Testament, God was the God of the Old Testament, the living God, a person, loving, energizing, seeking the accomplishment of an everlasting purpose of mercy, the satisfaction of his own loving nature. Perhaps it would be more correct to say that the monotheism of the Old Testament was never abstract because the God of the Old Testament was never a conception or a substance, essence, but always a person. Personality, indeed, has never the bare unity of a monad. That's from Thomas Kilpatrick in the article on Incarnation in a Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. Murray Harris, in Jesus as God, attempts to justify the traditional view of Jesus as fully God. His findings, however, leave him admitting that the Trinity is not easy to detect. Harris discovers no instance of a triune God in the pages of Scripture. It was not the triune God of Christian theology who spoke to the forefathers by the prophets. It would be inappropriate for Elohim, which is found meaning God, 2,570 times, or Yahweh, 6,800 times, ever to refer to the Trinity in the Old Testament, when in the New Testament, Theos, meaning God, regularly refers to the Father alone, and apparently never to the Trinity. That's from Murray Harris's book, Jesus as God, the New Testament use of Theos in reference to Jesus. Harris concludes, and I quote, No attempt has been made in the preceding summary to be exhaustive, but we have seen that throughout the New Testament, our Theos, God, is so often associated with and yet differentiated from Kyrios Jesus Christos, Lord Jesus Christ, that the reader is forced to assume that there must be both a hypostatic distinction and an interpersonal relationship between the two. The writers of the New Testament themselves supply the key by speaking not only of Orthos and Jesus, but also of Father and Son, of the Son of God, and of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the Father in the Trinitarian sense. Jesus is the Lord, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. When Orthos is used, we are to assume that the New Testament writers have the Father in mind unless the context, twice for certain, makes this sense of our theos impossible. That's from Murray Harris's book, Jesus as God. In a footnote, Harris adds, a related question demands brief treatment. To whom did the New Testament writers attribute the divine action described in the Old Testament? To answer the Lord God is to beg the question. For the authors of the New Testament wrote of Old Testament events in the light of their Trinitarian understanding of God. Yet above, he just said God never refers to the Trinity. A clear distinction must be drawn between what the Old Testament text meant to its authors and readers 
and how it was understood by the early Christians who lived after the advent of the Messiah and the coming of the Spirit. That's from Murray Harris's book, page 47. Harris goes on, I quote again, Certainly the person who projects the Trinitarian teaching of the New Testament back into the Old Testament and reads the Old Testament through the spectacles of the dynamic or Trinitarian monotheism of the New Testament is thinking anachronistically. On the other hand, it does not seem illegitimate to pose a question such as this. To whom was the author of Hebrews referring when he said in Hebrews 1.1, At many times and in various ways God spoke in the past to our forefathers through the prophets. That it was not the Holy Spirit in any ultimate sense is evident from the fact that in neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament is the Spirit called, quote, God, expressis verbis, in so many words. And in spite of the fact that the Septuagint equivalent of Yahweh, as to say Kyrios, is regularly applied to Jesus in the New Testament so that it becomes less a title than a proper name, it is not possible that Otheos, God, in Hebrews 1.1, denotes Jesus Christ. For the same sentence in Greek contains the God who spoke in these last days has spoken to us in a son, in Io, since the author is emphasizing the continuity of the two phases of divine speech, God having spoken, later spoke, this reference to a son shows that Otheos was understood to be God the Father from Harris's book. And of course, no New Testament writer ever wrote God the Son, Harris adds. Similarly, the differentiation made between Otheos as the one who speaks in both eras throughout the entire Bible, and Eos, son, as his final means of speaking, shows that in the author's mind it was not the triune God of Christian theology who spoke to the forefathers by the prophets, that's to say, for the author of Hebrews, as for all New Testament writers one may suggest, the God of our fathers, Yahweh, was no other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Compare Acts 2, verse 30 and verse 33, Acts 3, 13 and 3, 18, 3, 25 and 3, 26. Note also Acts 5, 30. Harris goes on. Such a conclusion is entirely consistent with the regular New Testament usage of Atheos, it would be inappropriate for Elohim, 2,570 times, or Yahweh, 6,800 times, ever to refer to the Trinity in the Old Testament, when in the New Testament, Theos regularly refers to the Father alone and apparently never to the Trinity. He later says, in classical Greek, Tothion, the Godhead, often signifies divine power or activity or the divine nature considered generically without reference to one particular God. There appears to be no New Testament instance where Theos signifies merely Tothion, deity in general. 
although both Philo and Josephus use Tertheon of the one true God of Israel's monotheism. In Acts 17.29, Tertheon is used of the deity that is often represented by the art and imagination of man. That's from Murray Harris's book, page 48. With this massive evidence for God as the consistent description of the Father of Jesus, Harris finds reference to Jesus as God, certainly in John 1.1 and John 20.28, very probably in Romans 9.5, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 1.8, 2 Peter 1.1, probably in John 1.18, possibly in Acts 20.28, Hebrews 1.9, and 1 John 5.20. Harris concludes with admirable candor that, quote, nowhere is it appropriate to render otheos, meaning God in Greek, by the divine essence or the Godhead. This is astonishing. No New Testament writer ever once put in writing the concept of God as three. It would be a giant understatement to say that finding the Trinity in the Bible is hard work. Harris throws in an occasional use of the word Trinitarian, despite his own findings. The relevant literature is full of expressions like, quote, the problem of the Trinity, and, quote, how the church was struggling to find ways of expressing what it was experiencing in terms that the Greek world would find, quote, meaningful. All the while, however, I believe the simplicity of Jesus, which Paul warned about losing, 2 Corinthians 11.3, was in fact being lost. Is it really too much to ask the reader to consider the fact that God would be pleased to have us confess and celebrate the creed of his own unique son? Is that complicated? Hardly. Our New Testament presents Jesus the Savior as imploring us to believe in him by understanding and believing and practicing his words. How could we disparage and spurn that teaching? How can we turn down his constant appeal and warning that we must listen to, quote, these words of mine, Matthew 7, 24, words which will, quote, not pass away, Matthew 24, 35, because they are more permanent than our present heaven and earth. Of countless talented writers on Jesus, some catch the spirit and style as the gospel narratives run on, we meet successively the Roman centurion, a woman of Samaria, of Syrophoenicia, of Bethany, and many more, children, scribes, beggars, Nathaniel, and Nicodemus, the leper, the demon-ridden outcast, and to each and all, Jesus turns as though the human contact matters more than all else in the world. He seems oblivious of politics, of philosophy, even of theology. Nothing matters save man in the purposes of God. Nothing matters save God in the life of any and every man, as from L.W. Grenstead's The Person of Christ. And by God, our writer means the God of Israel. The disciples were Hebrews, with all the teaching of the Old Testament to shape their thought of God. He was the God of Israel, just and loving, slow to anger and of great kindness. What they saw in Jesus did not contradict all this. The monotheism of Judaism 
has remained a foundation stone of Christian thought. But has it? Jews and Jewish theologians do not believe so. Is Trinitarian monotheism really the monotheism of Jews and of Jesus? It is the most obvious and straightforward fact of the entire Bible that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Hebrews, was a living personality who became deeply engaged in the life and struggles of the Hebrew people. That's a quotation from William Ladue, The Trinity Guide to the Trinity. Israel, indeed, knew that there were many gods, but they were urged by prophet and priest to adhere to their one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who was so far superior to the useless gods of the nations that he could bring them safe and alive from a burning cauldron. All the fury of a tyrannical, fiendish, pagan ruler like Nebuchadnezzar was no match for the incomparable God of Israel. Their knowledge of this one true and only God convinced Israel that he had spoken to them through Moses as the, quote, Almighty, a title never given to Jesus once in the Bible. God had addressed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Melchizedek, the mysterious priest, had spoken to Abraham of the unique Most High, El Elyon. That same Most High was the one who announced later that his Messiah was to be David's and God's son and received from him, quote, the throne of his father David, Luke 1, 32 and 35. That same all-powerful God of Israel had revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh the Lord, Exodus 3.14. This identifies the Jewish God as the one who is always present and active. The same author, William Ladue, says, echoing thousands of good articles on the God of the Hebrews, that the Jewish God of the Bible is, and I quote, an active, abiding presence who never grows weary and is ever vigilant. Isaiah 40, verse 28. A holy God who swears by the divine holiness. From the outset, Yahweh would not tolerate the worship of other gods. Exodus 20, verse 3. During the exile, approximately from 587 to 538 BC, Yahweh wanted the Hebrews to see him as a shepherd who nourishes his flock and carries his sheep in his arms, leading them with great care. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Nonetheless, Yahweh frequently proclaimed God's self as a jealous God. Yet Yahweh treated them with the gentleness of a father. Hosea 11, verses 1 to 3. And regarded them with the affection of a lover. Hosea 2, 9 to 16. Yahweh called himself the father of Israel. Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23. In the forging of the covenant, the Hebrew deity was given an explicitly personal character, by no means an impersonal power, eager to portray God as warm and personal. The prophets frequently referred to his love and his sorrow, his fear and his jealousy. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, set out once and for all the classic statement of Jewish monotheism. The ancients saw in the wind 
and in human breath a symbol of the activity and the nearness of the divine. They associated the spirit of life with the Lord's word, and these two agents, spirit and word, were responsible for establishing Yahweh's sovereignty over the whole of creation. Psalm 33, verse 6. The spirit is best understood as a vitalizing force and the word as the living expression of Yahweh's thought and will. Our author concludes his section on the God of the Hebrew Bible with this. Yahweh and his intermediaries, word, spirit, wisdom, constitute the intimations of Trinity in the Old Testament, but they do not emerge as distinct and equal personalities for the rigid and uncompromising monotheism of the Jewish faith would not countenance such a development. Neither, we propose, did Jesus for a single moment countenance such a, quote, development. Jesus was relentlessly and vigorously attached to the Jewish monotheism of his heritage. This is proven beyond any doubt by his wholehearted agreement with Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 and with a Jewish scribe. That confession of Jesus himself ought to be the gold standard by which all confessions are judged. At present, churches seem to have forgotten that Jesus was a Jew. And worse, that he recognized no God as God, but the God of the Hebrew Bible, his own Father. Jesus' affirmation of the unitary creed of Israel ought to have closed the door forever on any variation in the definition of God. Commentators very frequently admit the enormous change which overcame later discussions about who God is. The theological treatises on God, as revealed in the Judeo-Christian tradition, took a far different shape compared with the data in the Old Testament. Revealing also are the findings of a number of leading theologians. For Karl Rahner, the Yahweh of the Israelites is a particular person with a proper name who created everything that is and who intervenes in the life of the people. James White's definition of God as one what and three whose cannot be matched with Rana's definition. White's attempts to find the Trinity in the Bible are quite unconvincing. Karl Rana, when this leading Roman Catholic theologian produced an exhaustive examination of the word God in the New Testament, he concluded with these extraordinary admissions. We may outline our results as follows. Nowhere in the New Testament is there to be found a text with orthos, meaning God, which has unquestionably to be referred to the Trinitarian God as a whole existing in three persons. God is Trinity. According to a standard authority, Calvin says the opposite. When the word God is used without particular reference to any of the persons, it designates indistinguishably the three. The same source speaks of Calvin's strong insistence that the one who wishes to talk about the one true God must at all times talk about the triune God, 
since all else is vanity and idolatry. That's from Richardson and Bowden, Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology. In by far the greater number of texts, says Rana, Otheos refers to the Father as a person of the Trinity. In addition, Otheos is never used in the New Testament to speak of the Holy Spirit. That's from Karl Rahner's Theological Investigations. In a footnote, Rana adds, Thus, for example, the whole Old Testament saving history is ascribed to the God who sends Jesus. Thus, to the Father, Acts 3, 12-26, compare Hebrews 1, verse 1. In Acts 4, 24, Ephesians 3, 9, and Hebrews 1, 2, the God who created all things is clearly characterized as the Father in virtue of his distinction from the Son or Servant or Christ. Now, if creation and saving history are ascribed to God the Father, there can hardly be a single statement about Theos, God, which is not included therein. Where Christ's person and nature are to be declared with the greatest theological strictness and precision, he is called the Son of God. For the New Testament writers, the expression Theos, God, was just as exact and precise as Father. When in consequence of all this we say that Atheos, God, in the language of the New Testament, signifies the Father, all that is meant is that when the New Testament thinks of God, it is the concrete, individual, uninterchangeable person who comes into its mind, who is in fact the Father and is called Atheos. So that inversely, when Atheos is being spoken of, it is not the single divine nature that is seen, subsisting in three hypostases, but the concrete person who possesses the divine nature unoriginately and communicates it by eternal generation to a son too and by spiration to the spirit. That's from Karana's book. Rana and Harris as leading experts representing respectively the Roman Catholic Church and Evangelical Protestantism virtually concede our point that, quote, God in Scripture almost invariably means the Father of Jesus. Most significant of all, as a challenge to Trinitarianism, is Scripture's united testimony that God cannot possibly describe a triune God. The God of the Bible and of Jesus was and is not the trinity of traditional theology. Rana's conclusion to his detailed study is very similar to that of Murray Harris. The greatest number of references in the New Testament to God clearly refer to the Father. The six texts which might refer to the Son are, quote, hesitant and restrictive. Hardly a firm foundation for altering the monotheism of Israel. The word God, adds Rana, is never used in the New Testament to speak of the Holy Spirit. And when God is spoken of in the New Testament is the person of the Father who is referenced. The individual, quote, person who possesses 
the divine nature unoriginately. This is, of course, pure Unitarianism and has been pointed out by objectors to the Trinity for centuries. Rana concedes that in post-biblical times, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian speak of the Father as God par excellence. This, too, is a Unitarian perspective. The Church of the second century, although it had mistakenly extended the Son's life into prehistory, was far from establishing his deity. For example, Tertullian is supposed to be the father of Western Orthodoxy, yet he himself says that the Son did not exist from eternity. Quote, there was a time when neither sin existed with God nor the Son. End of quotation from Tertullian in his Against Hermogenes, chapter 3. Roman Catholic scholar Raymond Brown's biblical studies are well known and highly acclaimed. Brown says that, quote, Jesus is never called God in the Synoptic Gospels, and a passage like Mark 10, verse 18, would seem to preclude the possibility that Jesus used the title of himself. He says also that, quote, even the fourth gospel never portrays Jesus as saying specifically that he is God. Brown notes that there are five New Testament passages in which Jesus may be identified as God, but, quote, often these five examples are rejected by scholars on the grounds that the use of God for Jesus is rare in the New Testament and therefore always to be considered improbable. Raymond Brown concludes that there are only three texts where Jesus is clearly called God, Hebrews 1, 8-9, John 1-1, 1, 1, and John 20-28. 20, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, and that is God. But in what sense is he called God on those three rare occasions? In the Hebrews passage, the author immediately speaks of the Messiah as himself having a God who anoints him. And we know that human beings can be called God in a secondary sense. John speaks of the Logos, word, with a little w, as God, but does not equate the Son with the pre-existing Logos, or word, but speaks of the Son existing only when he appears as flesh in John 1.14. John is the writer who very clearly defines God from the words of Jesus as, quote, the only one who is truly God, John 17.3, and who describes Jesus as refusing the accusation that he is making himself God. See John 10.33-38. Raymond Brown is right that even the fourth gospel never reports Jesus as saying specifically that he is God. Brown observes that the New Testament as a whole shows that, quote, while Jesus was associated with God and was called the Lord or the Mediator, there was a strong tendency to reserve the title God to the Father, who is the one true God. This could most easily be explained on the basis of the simple fact that Jesus and the New Testament authors were Unitarian and monotheists of the strict Jewish type. Most revealing is the fact that the greatest of the Nicene Fathers, Athanasius, admitted that the Trinitarian formula of Nicaea 
open quotes, was going beyond anything said explicitly in the New Testament. Brown has hardly produced overwhelming evidence that Jesus' conviction that you, Father, are the only one who is truly God and the Hebrew monotheism which underlies that proposition have been overthrown and replaced by a belief in a triune God incompatible with the Hebrew Bible. John 17.3 identifies one person, not a what, as the Father, as the only one who is truly God. Equally decisive are the conclusions of another theologian, the French scholar Yves Congar. Examining Paul's writings, he finds that there are, quote, 40 or more quasi-Trinitarian formulas in Paul, but there are no clear statements revealing a trinity of persons in the one divine nature. That has been the claim of Unitarians for centuries. Congar judges that, quote, it is almost impossible to draw any real conclusions even from the Gospel of John regarding the dogma of the Trinity. Then he adds that it was John's Trinitarian view, so-called, that inspired Ignatius, who died around 110, Justin, who died around 165, and Irenaeus, who died in 200 AD. He observes a most significant fact as a corrective to the widely held but erroneous notion that the Trinity can be traced in an unbroken line back to the New Testament. Athanasius, around 295 to 373, and Basil the Great, 330 to 379, quote, stopped short of calling the Spirit God because they did not want to move beyond the data found in the Scriptures. William Ladue observes, quote, in the New Testament, the deity is identified again as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Mark 12, 26 to 27, as well as the Father of Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Theos regularly refers to the first person of the Trinity, the Father, and occasionally to the Son, but the term is apparently never used of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not called God in the Synoptic Gospels, nor does he specifically refer to himself as God in the Gospel of John. There is some dispute as to whether Paul unambiguously identifies Jesus as God. Not even the Pauline writings could support the Trinitarian doctrine we profess today. That's from Ladue, Trinity Guide to the Trinity. It seems to us a cruel injustice for churches today to threaten with loss of salvation anyone who questions the Trinitarian deity of Jesus. The evidence, as admitted by staunch Trinitarians themselves, is ambiguous at the very least. Very often, Trinitarian scholars concede their whole case to the Unitarian cause. If the Bible is to be our guide, as is the cry of Protestantism, why could we not settle the ambiguity once and for all by simply saying that Jesus resolved the issue for us? It is only for us to believe his words. God has not teased us with ambiguities, uncertainties, 
and hair-splitting arguments about how many he is. It is very unfair to hand a person a Bible recording the teaching of Jesus and then to maintain that the triune God of the church is easily identified with the God of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus simply and clearly affirmed the Unitarian Creed of Israel. Paul did likewise. I quote, For us Christians there is one God, the Father, and no other beside him. See 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. Paul confessed Jesus not as God, but with the rest of the New Testament as the Lord Messiah. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Paul said also, God is one person. Galatians 3.20 The Trinity adds two more who are God. This creed is not the creed of Jesus, and Jesus is to be Lord, Master, and Rabbi of his followers.